It is a great pleasure for us to be able to be here and to share with you this morning and to have met you over the, many of you anyway, over the uh, past couple of days and getting to interact some. I'm reminded of a story that I've shared occasionally when I speak at, at different places. Some of you may be familiar with the name of Billy Kim. Billy Kim is the pastor of the largest Baptist church in the world in Seoul, South Korea. Uh, he is also a translator or has been a translator for the Billy Graham Association, particularly for Billy Graham specifically. And I've had the privilege of having uh, breakfast with Billy Kim on a couple of occasions when he was at our home church. He uh, was a friend of uh, Carolyn's father. Billy shares the story that of one of the times that Billy Graham was in Korea and was speaking, and Billy Kim was serving as the translator. Billy Graham stood up, and he began in his good Asheville, North Carolina dialect and said, I'm tickled to death to be here. <laughs> and Billy Kim just kind of looked at him and didn't say anything, and he mouthed, Billy Kim mouthed to Dr. Graham and said, can't translate that. <laughs> and for whatever the reasons, Billy Graham just repeated himself and just said, I'm tickled to death to be here. He must not have gotten the message. And so Billy Kim turned to the congregation and, and spoke, and people kind of chuckled. And after the service, Billy Graham asked him, what, why were people laughing? And he said, look, I told you I couldn't translate this, so I did the best I could. But apparently in Korean, the, uh, the translation was, I scratch and scratch until I die. Um, <laughs> so I won't say that we're tickled to death, but we are, we are pleased to be here, and hopefully that translates in most languages. First Samuel chapter 4, we'll begin our reading in verse 1, continuing through verse 11. Hear the word of God. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They encamped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines camped at Aphek. The Philistines drew up in line against Israel. And when the battle spread, Israel was defeated by the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. And when the troops came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of hosts, who is enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. As soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, what does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the Ark of the Lord had come into the camp, the Philistines were afraid, for they said, a God has come into their camp. And they said, woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us. Who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. 
Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated, and they fled, every man to his home. And there was a very great slaughter, for there fell of Israel 30,000 foot soldiers. And the ark of God was captured, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. Grass withers, and flowers fade, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Let's pray. Father, as we come to this time, as we consider your word, I pray that you would speak to us, not only to the congregation, but to me, by your word and by your spirit. For we can read and we can study and we can pour all of our strength, our resources, intellect into this, and we can learn the words, the stories. But apart from your spirit speaking to us, we will never understand and discern what you would have us to know nor know how to apply this to our lives. Lord, we come now to listen to your voice, that you may speak to us, pointing out where we may be weak or in error, not to punish, but to shape, that we may grow to the full measure of Christ. Father, we come trusting in your promise that you who has begun a great work in us You will continue and see it through to the end. Lord, use this time as a part, a step in your process. We pray in the incomparable name of Jesus. Amen. Daddy, is God a giant or something? Just how big is he? I don't know how you would answer that question, but... That question was asked several years ago to a friend of mine by his then six-year-old daughter. And as hard as it is to think of how you would answer that question when somebody was to ask that of you, think again as to how difficult it would be to answer in such a way that would be comprehensible to a a six-year-old. To speak of the glory and the majesty and and, uh, all that God is in a simple way that is faithful and true and yet easily comprehended. My friend was a wise and and godly man, and so he thought about it for a moment, and he replied to his daughter, and he said, well, sweetie, my, you know, God is a spirit, and God is everywhere. He's not limited in space as we are, so God is everywhere at the same time, and we just can't really say how big he is, because he is bigger than all. She thought about that for a moment, and then she just said, well, good, because I told Katie at the kinder care this morning that she'd better watch where she walks or she may step on God's toes. <laughs> well, at this point in Israel's history, they were walking dangerously close to stepping on God's toes. Their hearts had become hardened. Their priesthood was polluted. And their society was just saturated in sin. And we come to this particular text as Israel is preparing and engaging in battle, people who are distant from God and yet practicing many of the formalities, not even aware that their relationship with God was strained. And I've loved this passage for a long time. 
because it vividly presents to us certain truths about God that may not be things that we need to learn, but we need to regularly remind ourselves about. It also is a vivid illustration of a dilemma that is common to many of us that we share in this fallen world. Now, as we look at the text, the first thing that we see is is something about God. And and if I was to, to summarize it, it would be very simply this, is that what we see here is that God corrects those whom he loves. We see that expressly stated in the scriptures. Proverbs, uh, Proverbs 3 tells us this, that as, as Solomon was writing to his son, my son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him who he, whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. And the writer of Hebrews picks up on that same theme and gives the same message and says very clearly, again, speaking to a son or to all of us, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be wary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the ones he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. So the Scripture tells us that God disciplines those whom we love. writer of Hebrews goes a step further in saying, if you never feel God's discipline, if you never experience correction from God, You need to check your lineage because you're an illegitimate child of God. God always teaches, instructs, and corrects the very ones that he loves. Now, our reaction is a lot like many children when we're in the midst of correction. Our response would be to say, you don't love me, which is why it's all more important that we not only have God's word telling us this is why God corrects us, but passages like the one before us that illustrate the very principle that God disciplines those whom he loves. Now, in this particular case, the instrument that the Lord chose to use to paddle his people with were their enemies, the the Philistines. We find the Philistines pop up from time to time in the Old Testament, and they continue to pop up today. Throughout the Old Testament, they were a perennial pain in the neck, and those of you that may not be aware of it, we could pick up a newspaper probably today and still see the evidence of the problem because the, the word Palestine is a derivative of Philistine. And so there is a connection. And so all you need to do is pick up the newspaper or turn on World News or listen to the BBC and find out how much Israel and Palestine love one another. And you get a, a hint of the intensity. In fact, it was probably far worse at that time. But just a bitter, bitter tensions that were... Uh, were constant at, at that time and have, have continued even to this day. Now, the Philistines were a, a highly militaristic people, which was not really as true of Israel. Uh, the Philistines were, not only did they have fierce warriors, but they had an advanced weaponry. They had entered into the Iron Age a couple of generations before. At this point, Israel was still a few generations from entering into the Iron Age. And so the Philistines, according to archaeologists, not only did they have metal weaponry, but probably at this point already had chariots as part of their arsenal, while Israel was still using primarily stones and spears in their battles. And so Israelites were facing a a superior foe in in many ways. The Philistines were also a very religious people. They worshipped a couple of gods, but preeminent among them was was a god named Dagon, who was half man and half fish, kind of like Poseidon of Greek mythology. And it was because of their affection and their commitment to to Dagon that they were incensed at the presence of these Hebrews who claimed to worship the one and only God. 
And so with religious tensions and with tensions of, of, uh, that take place when people are living in close proximity to one another, uh, they were at odds and at battle uh, with one another at, at that time. And as we look at our text, the text tells us the Philistines and, and Israel went into battle, and the Philistines killed about 4,000 men in that first battle. Now, as I read this, I, I don't think that the number 4,000 is either accidental or incidental. In one sense, I don't know if it was 4,000 exactly, but what God chose to record is to give us the picture of how many were slaughtered in that day, and the 4,000 uh, may be a very specific message to us, because from, at times, numbers in Scripture have significance. Now, some people get carried away with biblical numerology as if they're going to find keys in, in those, but we do see that numbers, uh, numbers at times are used to reflect a message, uh, sending a signal, and they symbolize something to us. And throughout the Scriptures, the number four has a significance. It's, it's really it's a representative, representative of earth. When we look at the number four, or at least when we consider the Scripture, we realize God and his creation. We, we read about in the Scripture the four regions uh, that are on the, uh, around the earth, north, south, east, and west. We have four seasons, winter, spring, summer, and fall. We see that the fourth commandment of the Scripture deals with resting from our labors on the earth. We have four Gospels that tell us of Jesus' walk and, and labors on the earth. The fourth clause of the Lord's Prayer is that the Lord's will be done on earth, even as it is in heaven. And, and the fourth book of the Bible, the book of Numbers, is a chronicle of God's people who were wandering the earth for a period of 40 years. And so when you see the number four, a lot of times there is a significance to the number four, uh, and it just says it is a very earthy thing. The number 1,000 in Scripture often just reflects something that is multitude. So we may ask, why were there 4,000 killed, or why 4,000 do we have recorded here? And it may very well be that the Lord was sending a message to Israel and, and to us that the people had become too earthly, or earthly to a multitude, or we might say that they had become too worldly. As the people who had been redeemed of God and had been blessed by God, the ones who God had provided for, they were called to live on this earth, and actually the commission that was given to uh, to their forefather Abraham, was they were to be agents of blessing to the earth, and rather than looking to God, depending on God, and growing in godliness, they looked around and found their own agenda and asked God to bless that. It's the, the epitome of what worldliness is, and as a result, they were not walking with God. And it's quite possible, and I, I tend to, I am, I'm inclined to believe that the Lord was sending them a message in even the number of people that were slaughtered that day. And yet even to their credit, the people, uh, they understood. We read in our passage that the elders of Israel recognized that it was God who had been the one who had slain them. It would have been very easy for them to say, they have a bigger army, they have bigger soldiers, they have better weaponry. You know, you go into a battle like that and you have losses. And that's not what they said. The elders came back still licking their wounds and said, why did the Lord bring defeat upon us? They were aware of something that we need to be aware of. That God is active. God is aware. And God interacts with his people. In this case, they were saying, why did the Lord bring defeat upon us? 
no power of positive thinking there. It wasn't a matter of God just sets things in motion and the Lord just blesses us. God's job is to bless us and give us what we need. And so nobody was saying, well, how did this happen? This was certainly not God's will. They understood that they somehow were out of favor with God when they entered into this battle. It's important that we understand that at times, that while not all of the discipline that we experience, not all the hardships we have in life are direct consequences of our sin, some of them are. And so we need to be aware of that so that at times we can ask ourselves, is there something in my life? At the same time, being balanced enough to realize we do experience suffering at the heart, uh, because of other people as well. So we don't wallow in that, but at least learn to ask ourselves the question, why am I experiencing defeat, frustrations? wounds in my life right now? Is there something that makes me out of line with God? What's going on in my life? Now, in Israel, there was a very real problem. And it's a problem that is not uncommon, though their way of exercising it may seem odd to us. But the first thing that we see as we look in this passage is it tells us something about God, several things about God, really. Ultimately, it tells us that God disciplines those whom he loves. These were his people, and he was bringing correction to them. It also tells us that God is aware, God is interacting, God is active, God is alive. But, it also, but then second, it tells us something about ourselves. And if I was to summarize it, I would probably say that God is addressing our propensity to be manipulators or attempt to manipulate God with our religion. Sometimes our religion is simply superstition. It may be rooted in truth, but we treat it as if it is merely superstition. Now, before I explain that, I think it's important that we understand and a caveat that we need to, again, remind ourselves regularly. When we read the Bible, we are not looking at a book that is filled of do's and don'ts. We don't read the Bible or the narratives of the Old Testament looking for examples to follow or fools to avoid. We look at the Bible in realizing that this is a record of redemptive history. This is how God has interacted with people, people like us, from the very beginning. And so when we come to passages like this, or we come to other passages, it's helpful for us to ask ourselves not what should I do, what shouldn't I do. It's, those are important, but that's not our primary question or our initial question. The first question we should be asking ourselves is, in what way am I like this? In what way does this reflect my heart or my actions? And to what degree does it reflect my own heart or my actions? When we read the Bible in passages like this, with that question in mind on the forefront, we gain far more because God then points out our heart, our foolishness, our misconceptions, and shows how he has worked with his people and how he has corrected his people, how he has demonstrated his love to his people. When we realize that that's the relationship that we have, and God has given this to us so that he, as our Father, can correct us even through the example of others, we benefit, we grow, and we are in line with redemptive history rather than Dear Abby. This is important for us to just always remind ourselves and, and, cha and shape the way that we, we read the Bible. Now, that said, what we see taking place is the elders of Israel, <clears throat> and, uh, Take a drink here, Camper provided for me. The elders of Israel had, um, had realized that God was at work, but one of the elders had a brilliant idea. And 
I'm being very sarcastic with that. They said, let's go get the Ark of the Covenant. We'll bring the Ark of the Covenant, and we'll have the Ark, and we'll go into battle. We'll, we'll go have a rematch. Now, it prompts the question is, what exactly is the Ark of the Covenant? Simply put, the Ark of the Covenant is a very important piece of furniture that was in the temple and in the tabernacle. Uh, it was, a, basically, it's a box, about four foot by two foot by two foot. Actually, I have to apologize there. I was corrected the other day because I keep saying foot, and Carolyn informed me that it's feet. Uh, so those of you who are grammarians, I'm not sure which one is correct, but she's probably right. Um, and so it's one of those things, don't do it, don't do it. I just did exactly what I wasn't supposed to do. But anyway, it's a box, you know, you know roughly just, uh, maybe the length, the uh, partial length of the table in front of you. And it was made of acacia wood. It was covered in, in gold. And inside the Ark of the Covenant were uh, the actual tablets that the Ten Commandments were written on by God, Aaron's rod that had miraculously budded, and some leftover manna from the wilderness that God had chosen, I guess, not to, uh, to take up as he did each day. And the Ark was kept in the Holy of Holies, the the inter sanctum of the, uh, of, the, of the tabernacle. And each year on Yom Kippur, the, the Day of Atonement, the high priest would enter in and he would pour out the, the blood sacrifice on the mercy seat. Actually, he would sprinkle that upon there, seeking forgiveness based on the blood of, of the sacrifice that was offered. And if he himself had been purified enough, if God accepted the sacrifice, uh, the priest would experience something that nobody else was able to experience at that time, what's known as the Shekinah glory of God, something that's kind of tangible and touchable. We see the glory of God all around us, but there was some way that the priest was able to experience it in a way uh, that was more tangible than what we are used to. And then he would depart from the, uh, the, uh, from the inner sanctuary, and he would come out to the people, and when he reemerged, the people were aware that the sacrifice had been accepted. Their sins had been pardoned, and they were free for uh, another year. And so the ark was a significant part of Israel. It, it, it's, a, it's important in both in the worship and in the sacrifice that was offered and to what it pointed to, because the ark of the covenant in, in a lot of ways points us to the one who would come to be the perfect sacrifice. The ark contained the law, the bread of life. The ark is a, a picture in many ways, pointing the people to Jesus and pointing us to Jesus as well. And the ark was something that was treasured in Israel, but not necessarily understood. Some of you may be familiar with the Ark of the Covenant. If you watch the old movies and Raiders of the Lost Ark, that's where they came from. You might recall that that was the object uh, that they were fighting over, the Nazis at the time. Uh, they wanted to grab the ark, and Indiana Jones was trying to keep the, uh, the Nazis from getting it. Because everyone believed, both Indiana Jones and the Nazis, that whoever, whoever had the possession of the ark, they were invincible. That was the whole premise and why they were debated. And at times you, you look at Hollywood and say, where in the world did you get that? At this time, we've got to give them a little bit of slack. As wrong as it may be, Steven Spielberg only believed the same thing that Israel believed at the time. Because that's what they said. Why did God bring defeat upon us? Tell you what, let's go get the ark, and then we'll call for remit. If we have the ark in our midst, we are unbeatable. And so they bring the ark in. And all the armies of Israel, they were excited and said that you could, just, you could hear and you could feel the buzz. And they let out a shout, and 
the whole earth shook. So the armies, it was, the earth was vibrating, and it was vibrating enough, quaking enough, that even the Philistines, who were essentially fearless, they were afraid. It's like a pre-game intimidation. They were afraid, and they, they were acknowledging that they were afraid, and they were almost conceding that they were going to lose this fight, but it wasn't in their makeup to give in. They were going to fight anyway, even though they believed they were going to lose because they believed a God or Israel's God, and they were aware of who Israel's God was. And they recount some of God's power and his history, particularly as he worked in Egypt to deliver his people. Aware of that and fearing what might happen, they just said, be men, dig in, give it whatever you got. They went into battle. Some resolve, but not with a lot of hope. The text tells us, somewhat surprising, if we hadn't already read it, if you weren't already familiar with the story, you're waiting to see Israel just roll all over them. And it's just amazing when you look at the text again, when they were saying, take courage, if we lose this, we're going to be slaves to them. And in verse 10, so the Philistines fought and Israel was defeated. You have to look at that a second time because you think, that, that can't be right. That's not the way the story is supposed to go. And then everyone fled, and there was a great slaughter. And so you're, you're looking at this story, and, and you say, wait a second, what happened here? I mean, first of all, Israel had faith. I mean, they said, let's bring it in, and let's bring it, out, bring it on. We're, we're going we're to go back, and we're going to have another fight. And they were excited, and they shouted, and their faith was so evident that even their foes were afraid of them. And so they, they walked into this battle with great faith. And you can turn on your TV and find any number of faith preachers will tell you that's pretty much all you need, just have faith. So how is it that they lost at this point? They went in thinking they were going to win. Their opponents thought that they were going to, uh, that, they were, uh, that Israel was going to win. And they get wiped out. The problem was that their faith was in an it, not in him. Their faith was placed in an object, a gift of God that points toward Jesus, but not trusting in Jesus himself. And so when the battle was over, Israel had their clocks cleaned. 30,000 people had been killed. The priests had been killed. And the Ark of the Covenant not only didn't bring them victory, but the Philistines took it. It, it was captured. Israel used the gift of God that was to bring them into God's presence, to remind them of God's grace, sort of as a talisman. It's a good luck charm. And it brought them about as much good luck as a rabbit's foot brings to the rabbit. It just, they, uh, they, they just got wiped out. They, they had misplaced their faith. And what they were trying to do was if they brought this in, then God has to bless us. Reminds me of a story of a, of a young boy who wanted a bicycle for his birthday. Problem was, times were tight. His parents weren't particularly wealthy, and he didn't announce his desire for a bike until the day before his birthday. And his mother uh, tried to say very gently, look, we, we love you. I wish we'd have known about that. We've already purchased your gifts. And you know, we can't just go out and, and make a, an expensive purchase like that just on a whim. 
he was a little disappointed, but he was not undone. And so he had remembered that his mother had taught him that if you really want something, then pray. Go to God and pray. And so he went up and said, very simply, Lord, I want a bike. Morning came. Then came noon, time for the birthday party. The gifts were come, but there was no bicycle. Frustrated, but still not undone, he went back up to his room, thought about praying, and then decided on something else. He went out to his father's detached garage and got his old childhood wagon, a rope and a drop cloth, put it in the wagon, walked on down to you know, St. Something's Church around the corner, went into the garden, grabbed the statue, tied it to the, put the drop cloth on it, tied it to the wagon, brought it home, put it in the back of the garage, went back up into his room and prayed again. Dear Jesus, if you ever want to see your mother again. <laughs> now, I think that's funny, but I know it can also be offensive. And so I'll apologize now for anybody who does find it offensive, but I have to ask this question. Could it be any more offensive than our own tendency to try to manipulate God to doing what we want is to God? I know that it can be offensive to our sensibilities and dealing with you know, cross-denominational humor and, and foolishness in prayer. But we are so prone to do exactly what Israel does. We look at it and say, it's a box. Who's going to think it's a box? We are far more sophisticated than that. We know that that doesn't work, and yet we do the same exact thing all the time. I was struck when I was reading Jerry Bridges' uh, book, Discipline of Grace. Some of you are familiar with Jerry Bridges. He works with the navigators. And as he was talking about a certain practice that he had wrestled with, that I continue to wrestle with, many people wrestle with, he said, we just have this tendency when we really want something, either things are not going well, we want the, things to the tide to change, or things may be okay, but we want something more. We look at our lives and we get really busy to make sure we do everything we're supposed to. So we have our quiet times, too. We double it up. We're making sure we're in church. We're doubling our time. We do all sorts of things because we figure by our actions that God somehow is going to be more inclined to bless us. Now, I'm not throwing stones because I'm very guilty of this. All week long, I've been wrestling with that, the same thing, knowing that I'm going to be teaching and preaching, knowing that I'm coming and meeting, and in one sense, being judged today more than most days. Um, but, and so part of me is thinking, okay, you know, make sure that your life is in order. Make sure. And I knew I was preaching from this text all week. I mean, I knew it was wrong. And yet I just find myself making sure more keenly aware about my own behavior as if something I do or something that I don't do is going to make God more inclined to love me and to work in my life. Bridges in another one of works calls, of his works calls it the, uh, the, the problem of the, uh, of the performance treadmill. We work hard and we work harder and we keep going and we get nowhere. And we just have a hard time understanding that because we're putting so much attention to what we do and, and utilizing gifts that God has given to us. We may do it in a lot of ways, and a lot of people, when they know they want God to bless them, they, they dig into the Bible. They may feel a little bit dry at a time, they just want to experience God's presence, or they want something in their life. They start reading the Bible, and they're doing fine until they get to about Genesis 3. 
and then kind of wanes off, and those who persevere continue on, and then finally get to the genealogies, and it's over. And you, you just, just worn out, and you're just thinking, why isn't this helping? I mean, God, I'm, 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 I'm trying to be faithful and in your word, and I still have troubles. I mean, I'm, I'm glad I've read it, but it, it's, it's not like everything is perfect now. You know, there are some among our number, at least in the PCA, who would say, well, it's absolutely foolish just simply reading the Bible is nothing. You've got to understand the doctrine. You know, just reading the words, you've got to understand what it means and the significance, particularly the doctrines of grace. And when you get the depth of doctrine, then the Bible will come alive and you'll have meaning. And so they can spell tulip in several different languages. <laughs> and they continue to feel dry and they may even experience what the Bible warned us about is there are some, some knowledge that puffs up. It's not the knowledge of tulip or the doctrines of grace. It's the way that we use it, thinking that simply by growing in an extent of knowledge it is going to bring us closer to God. It, it doesn't happen magically or automatically. Now, a number of people are sitting there, and you know people like that, and you're saying, yeah, you know, those foolish people. It, they don't think, no, it's about, it's about missions and evangelism. You know, I... If I knew, could speak with the tongues of angel, but have not love, and so I'm going to go love, and I'm going to, and, and so now I'm involved, and I share the gospel with everybody that I meet. I even leave a tract with a waitress uh, that looks like a $20 bill at the restaurant I'm meeting. I, um, I know people who do that. I've never actually watched the waitress's response. I've also never seen anybody saying, you know what, I think I'm going to their church next week. But, um, and so they're engaged in these things, and, and they're still finding even in the midst of their serving. Sometimes they feel good. Sometimes they feel empty. Other people, the real spiritual ones, are going to say it's because it's about worship. It's about singing praise to God, knowing that God's in our midst. And, and the answer to that is, if you come and sing praise, and you come know God is here, but you are not encountering God, Ultimately, it is just like spiritual Chinese food. It feels good for a while, gives you a little bit of comfort, but it's going to go away soon and ultimately give you almost no nourishment. And we, we deal with all of these things. God has given us each one of these. I'm not in any way suggesting these are unimportant. These are vitally important. These are God's gift, essentially means of grace, through which we are able to be reminded of him and even encounter him and experiencing him. But these things are no substitute for relating to him and resting in him. And yet, we focus more on the means than on the person. In a few moments, Camper is going to lead us to the Lord's table, another one of God's very vivid gifts, as we are told that we are partaking in and participating in the death and the resurrection in Christ in his death as we come and we were told we can experience but if we focus more on the elements and our partaking of the table than we do on the person who gave himself for us and resting in him then ultimately it will come to no avail we must be very wise in the way we live our lives and we must be very aware John Calvin tells us our hearts are little idol factories we can take anything God gives us and we can spin it into an idol that reflects God. And it is never a substitute. And it can never be a substitute for, for encountering God. Israel thought that they had God in a box. And this passage in all of Scripture tells us God cannot and will not be boxed. God is greater than anything that we have. God is immense and beyond ability to measure. 
Even his very creation, as we're told, at least from what I've read from different astronomers, is actually expanding. Astronomers tell us that the Earth is just, is just on the move, that we are spinning uh, on, our ax, uh, on our axis at 1,000 miles per hour. That's my excuse when I seem a little dizzy, is that we're just spinning. At the same time, the Earth is circling the sun at 67,000 miles per hour. And our sun and its planets are moving north in the Milky Way galaxy at a speed of 12,000 miles per hour, at the same time circling around the center of the Milky Way galaxy at 640,000 miles an hour. Now, math is not my strength, but I did use a calculator and tally that up to at least approximately. We are right now, while we're sitting or standing here, moving at a rate of 1.32 million miles per hour. And then astronomers tell us that we're expanding, too, that the universe is actually growing. And I, you know, I quit reading and saying, well, where's it going to go? I mean, I, you know, it's beyond my comprehensibility in first place, and it's expanding still. And God is greater still, and he gives us these facts and understanding to say, look, you can't even comprehend, measure the universe, because even if you think you got it nailed down, it continues to expand. You think you're going to put me in a box? No way. I am bigger than any box. Don't simply assume that you can make me into a formula, that you can figure me out. It's not a warning. It's an encouragement because his invitation is just come. Come and relate to me. Or as the psalmist reminds us, be still and know that I am God and I will be known among the nations. It's the exhortation for us today. We would be a people who know God and learn to rest in him rather than practicing our tendency to manipulate him. May the Lord give us grace to see the tendency in our lives and to forego it for the moment. Let me pray.